Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Alyssa Pariah for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is January 16, 2018, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello, Alyssa. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Where were you born? Freehold, New Jersey. Do you, um, uh, um, one of my fellow colleagues, the question you always ask is, uh, what was your first memory? Tattling on my dad at preschool for being an abusive, sadistic Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Good, well, good question. What do you remember from that, from that, doing that? And... The fallout, mostly. Learning that you're not supposed to tell when your family is in trouble because maybe uh, kinder care doesn't particularly care about the, the well-being of poor families. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about your your family when you were growing up, your household, and who lived there, and what they were like. It must not have been long after my tattling on my dad that my mom... Uh, took me and ran away uh, so that we could stay alive. And it was she and I until I was five. Uh, and then she had my little sister. And then it was the three of us. And sometimes one of my mom's friends or boyfriends. Yeah, there was usually someone staying with us, even though we could have gotten kicked off of Section 8 for that. <laughs> but somebody was usually staying with us. Did uh, Child Protective Services get involved around your father and when you when you told on him? My father and my mother. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I was always on their radar because my dad didn't show up when I was born, so he's not uh, on my birth certificate. I don't have pictures of me in the hospital, which is still like a, I suppose, a point of embarrassment for my mom and regret. And then there were also like trace amounts of like some drugs um, when they did, I guess, like a, a blood test or something on me when I was born and they immediately alerted Child Protective Services. And then I went to plenty of like mandatory counseling and check-ins with school guidance counselors all through elementary school through uh, graduating high school. Yeah. But I never got, I never got uh, taken away, which is good. Even like when my mom went to jail, 
um, because my my grandmother, her mother, was able to step up. And I knew how to be quiet and not tell people about what was happening in my house. And I'm sure that first memory that I didn't know was my first memory, but now I do. Um, I suppose that taught me to like conceal family stuff. You know. When you were a small child, do you know how your parents got by? Um, I don't know what my... Well, actually, I do know what my dad... <laughs> My dad found white women <laughs> to support him <laughs> and did okay, I guess. Um, I rarely saw him. I always hated to have to see him. My mom usually kept some sort of minimum wage job. Um, she was a waitress. She was a, a cab dispatcher. was like a, a medical assistant assistant like vaguely in the medical field like doing like very menial tasks um being underpaid for it so those were the most of the jobs that she did um until after i was an adult when she um got her ged and then took some college classes and got her certification to be a drug and alcohol counselor. Oh, and that's wow. that's what she does now. In New Jersey? No, she's in Florida. Oh, wow. Yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, so when your mom ran away, did she change towns? Did she, where did you end up? And was your situation similar after that? Yeah, uh, we, it was pretty close. Townships in New Jersey are like not like that hard to get from one place to another. Uh, he was, he didn't know where we were for some time, even though we were not very far, I, I don't think, as we were hopping around from place to place. But he didn't know where we lived, and he never came around. And I know that because I was always really afraid that he would. What are some things you remember about what you were like as a child? I knew too much. Oh, God, I knew way much um i remember talking to other kids when they would talk to me because i was a pariah back then um and i remember thinking all of these kids are really stupid and they don't know anything and how is it that i know and like perceive and understand deeply everything around me and they don't uh that that um, defined a lot of my childhood. Well, and it's given me the idea in my adulthood that I'm just now letting go of that um, I don't like children because um, I didn't like them when I was a child. And then like in my early adulthood, I would sort of say that flippantly um, because I thought people may think it's charming for me to say, I haven't liked kids since I was a kid. And that like being like a, a thing I would say on repeat. Um, and low-key, I think it was a way for me to evade the reality that I um, probably will never have kids. So, like, trying to preemptively assert to myself that this is not something in my future, so I should be sure to assert that it's not something that I want anyway, which is a thing that I do across the board. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
what were uh what were the towns you were like in the schools you were at what were they like racially um mostly black and puerto rican um and some uh, white italians it's mostly it. And was your family Puerto Rican? Mm-hmm. My mom's Puerto Rican. So tell me a little bit about being a teenager. Harassment, abuse, humiliation. Feeling trapped. Um, scared. Then bitter. It was just, it was all bad. It was all bad. I just hate, I, I, I went from my first day of middle school, right? So like 12 years old or 11 going to, into 12 when you're six in sixth grade. Anyway, um, before I made it to homeroom, it's like I just walked in the building for the first time since like the tour that we would go on before we went to the school, like the first day before I even made it to homeroom. And I went into the front doors uh, and it was very crowded because everyone would be held outside, sort of standing around. You couldn't just go into the school because, you know, they, they when you're in a, school, a poor school, they treat you like it's jail, right? So like, I would then later learn that there are other schools in other towns that you know, kids go in and go out and they go wherever they want. They use whatever facilities they like. No, no, no. We were like outside, sometimes in the hot, sometimes in the cold, until the very moment that we were all let in. Then we had four minutes to go to where we had to go. If we didn't get there on time, we would go to detention. You would go to detention. You'd have to serve. There'd be like a person mapping and keeping track of every session that you go to, how many you have. And it didn't occur to me at the time, but then when I would later politicize, I'm like, oh, they were preparing us for prison. Great. Cool. All right. Anyway. Um, so before I made it to homeroom, it like bolted, went to the right, went to the first stairwell, went up the stairwell. It was like a two flight stairwell. And I wasn't sure if I was going in exactly the right direction. So I called out to someone who I knew. Since I was a toddler, by the way, and like went to preschool with, and his name was Manny, Manny Navarro. And um, I yelled out to him, hey, Manny, is this where we're supposed to be going? Is this the, the class we're supposed to go to? And I assumed that that was like a fine thing to ask, and it was fine for me to ask it, and that there was nothing wrong with that until... Um, a group of boys heard me, registered what I said, and immediately mocked me and called me a fag for the way that I was talking. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad. And not just that this is going to be bad, but that it's going to be bad because I can't get it together, right? So like all of the years... Um, before, like when I was in elementary school, which, um, I felt the protection of all of my, um, women teachers who would affirm me, right. And thought that my personality was like cute and charming. 
Um, and when someone would like try to come for me, they would, you know, push back and not let that happen and would like discipline the boys. But suddenly I'm like vulnerable and in this middle school that is like mixed up, you know, with like other schools, and the teachers care less because now we're using like the period system. So, um, felt very vulnerable and it occurred to me that like these kids could all jump me they could push me down the stairs everyone would see um no one around came to my defense neither did Manny by the way who at that point I must have known for like seven or eight years okay Manny I see how it is um so, uh, it absolutely set the tone, right? So like one day if I ever, you know, write my book, like that will be a very like formative chapter that, you know, people will quote and like remember, but yeah, that, that, that would color the next, um, six years from six to 12. Um, and that's exactly how it would play out continuing through So you were uh, harassed and bullied a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot, yeah. And that was uh, mostly in the context of you being read as a... A fag. A fag, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I knew full well, always, that um, my personality was off-putting to a lot of people. And um, sometimes... Uh, it, it was it was directly told to me like you know like the way that you're acting is bad you need to do something about that um, and in other contexts when it wasn't directed to me it was directed to my mom who people perceived as being neglectful and um, uh, not demanding that I be around my dad or my uncles or my boy cousins or play sports because she was um, mostly hands off, frankly, because of her problem with drugs, but, um, outside of that, just didn't police me. Like she, she was fine with me. So I, um, I, I felt some protection from her, um, and also felt like I needed to, um, defend her, um, against the tax where people would criticize her parents saying, but using the lens of my gender performance or failure, right, to criticize her, to say, like, obviously, Michelle, my mom's name is Michelle, too, Michelle. Um, obviously, Michelle, there's something wrong because look at how he's acting. You're not making interventions. He's going to grow up and this is going to be a problem for the rest of his life if you don't do something about it. And, and that was like, a, a constant. Um, so I always knew, but now that's being colored with um, violence and the threat of violence, the constant threat of violence. Like, oh, these, these kids will jump me and no one around will do anything about it. Um, which is where a lot of my anger and bitterness would come from because I had a lot of girlfriends who I knew from like dance and choir uh, and drama and um, helping them with their homework, right? And uh, 
all of the things, talking about music and movies and like all of the fun stuff that is associated with like vivacious, uh, queer faggy boys, right? Um, that they would see that I was being harassed and threatened and they wouldn't intervene also colored how I would perceive my potential for relationships with people always. I didn't know that at the time, but now it's like, it's very clear. Um, even if you like me, even if you, you know, get a kick out of me and, and, uh, have some sort of a relationship with me. Um, if you see that I'm hurting and you don't do anything about it, I'm never going to really feel close to you. So I struggle with closeness. What kind of care would you have needed then? Like if you could go back and care for yourself and protect yourself in that time. Um, some fearless role models, maybe somebody that I could have seen. That would have affirmed me in, um, in ways that I very clearly felt attacked. Somebody maybe who had their life together. Somebody who maybe has their life together. Who is respected. Who has a house and a car and a job. Which is like rare. Okay. Um, who would have been like, oh, no, you're great. There's nothing wrong with how you are at all. Um, and um, the people who are doing this to you are like suffering themselves and want you to share in their suffering and um, try to see the bigger picture. Maybe that would stress to me the sort of impermanence of my situation, which was hard for me to grasp at the time, despite the intelligence that I'm assigning to myself years later. Um, uh, I think maybe that could have helped because I remember watching um, Richard Bay, Jerry Springer, Ricky Lake on TV, and I would see transsexuals. And some of them are really beautiful but none of them were respected none of them uh were being affirmed they were all being humiliated um whether or not they were beautiful um but the beautiful ones were treated a bit better and then that would go on to color how i would understand transitioning and that like the best thing i could hope for is to be beautiful and hopefully undetectable in order to like have a shot at a good life. I imagine that if that was not my only exposure uh, to people sort of breaking gender, then I imagine that that could have been helpful. So how did you get out of this nightmare of not have no one having your back? Graduating high school. I was so angry at my high school graduation. I was so bad. I didn't want to go. Um, I had 
a lot of absences my junior and senior year because I used to cut school and either like stay in bed all day or take the train and go to the city and hang out with the girls, right? Um, so my junior year of high school, I had 46 absences. And my senior year, I had 61 absences. And there were like 180 school days. Um, the only reason that I was able to graduate was one, because my grades were fine. The school expected very little academically, so it was not difficult for me to pass. And there were some sympathetic people um, who saw what I was going through, especially the detention, um, I want to call him a warden or guard, but he was a teacher. Um, He saw what it looked like when I would go into the detention room and there was a detention room in my school that was open an hour before school, four hours after school, eight hours on Saturday and eight hours on Sunday. Like, whoa, they really were getting us ready for being incarcerated. Okay. Um, He saw what it looked like when I would go in there and that not only was I unhappy because nobody's happy in detention, but it actually is causing a disturbance because the boys in there can't help themselves but to attack me. And of course, looking back, it's because those like confused boys were like looking at this like gender breaking queen. And like, I'm sure I I was either erupting something inside of them because you know, they wanted to break gender themselves or they wanted to like break into my ass and fuck me. Uh, and in some cases that would prove to be true. But we can move on. Uh, so actually the, the teacher that ran the detention room would just mark me down for being in detention and being like caught up because whenever you in this school, you would have to do four hours of detention for missing a day of school. Um, and that would be on top of any other sort of infractions that you would incur. And I certainly would because of my bad attitude and my causing my own problem, which is what the administrator, uh, what's his name? I guess it's better not to say names anyway. Uh, an administrator. Oh, I do remember his name now. I'm not going to say it. Uh, an administrator said that to me, uh, without apology. Well, look at the way that you act and talk and dress. How, how could you expect us to protect you or to do anything for you or hold these kids accountable? You bring it on yourself. And that same administrator, another day when he had seen me in the hallway, um, going to the bathroom and I didn't have a hall pass. That was also one of my problems. I was very offended at the idea that I needed to get a bathroom pass. Why should I have to raise my hand and get your permission to go to the bathroom? I know when I need to go to the bathroom, but there were administrators monitoring the hallways who would write you up if you didn't have a bathroom pass. Also, hello, getting us ready for jail. Like, what is wrong with these people? So 
that would happen. And if you were in the hallway without a pass, then you would get written up for detention and you'd have to serve an hour in detention for being in the hallway. And this is the norm. So I see him while he sees me in the hallway as I'm on my way, by the way, to the like single stall bathroom that the cafeteria staff would let me use because they felt bad for me because I couldn't go to the bathroom because I knew what would be waiting for me if I went to the bathroom and somebody saw me into the boys' bathroom and somebody saw me. So they let me use their bathroom, which is a single stall with a lock, and they would let me come and use their bathroom, which sometimes was far away from the classroom that I was in. So sometimes I'd be in the hallway for more time than necessary. So like bathroom was a problem for me in high school. But anyway, so I hear as I turn a corner and I guess he thinks I'm out of earshot, he says to a person that's walking around with him, like one of the security guards that we had, um, the next RuPaul, right? And this is, you know, <laughs> this is an administrator. This is someone that's like charged with my safety or something. So I was just very angry by the time I finished high school. I was so angry at everything. I was angry at the administration. I was angry at my classmates. I was angry at my mom for making me go to the graduation. I felt like she was making it about her. I didn't want to take pictures. I knew that my pictures would be used against me later, which is why if I ever get to any sort of level of notoriety or like, I don't know if I get arrested and people do like a GoFundMe and it gets out and the right sees it and then they want to humiliate me. They will not be able to find my yearbook pictures because I knew that I was not going to look like a little confused brick forever. So I didn't take pictures. And I feel real fucking good about that. So I also didn't want to go to graduation for the same reason. She made me go to graduation. I didn't feel good about it. I didn't like the graduation. I was very happy to leave and never come back. Um, It still is a place that when I go back and I... I'm like in a car going past it. I get agita so bad and I need to like take a benzo um, because it was just such a traumatic place for me. So to this day, I only speak to one, count it, one person from high school, my one friend, James Saunders, who I love dearly, 13 years, we're friends now. He's the only person who I'll speak to. Other people speak to him when they see him say oh well, Alyssa is so great you know we see her activism that she's doing and she's pretty and uh tell her we said hi and we should all hang out and I, I told I've told him many times don't even entertain it don't tell me when they said it I don't want to know I don't want to speak to any of those people I'm pissed they saw what I was going through they didn't do anything fuck everybody so I'm 31 it's been 13 years. I'm still very, very bitter. I'm not ready to let it go. On your most fabulous days, at your okay. very best in high school, what did you look like? Um, uh, my curls were popping. Um, I used to use a lot of Ampro uh, protein gel. And my curls were crispy, uh, but defined as fuck. 
Um, and I had on my my tight jeans and my tight shirt, my colorful colors and all with the money that I had. So fuck you very much. I'm going to wear what I want to wear. Once I started making my own money, I'm like, I am not spending my own money on boy clothes. No. I, I, I begrudgingly accepted them when someone else was buying them for me or they were being given to me. But uh, I'm making my own money. I'm buying what I want. Um, and um, I remember um, having um, a, a, a headband that I would make out of a T-shirt just like cutting the bottom of a t-shirt so it sort of roll perfectly and tie it around my head and make it really tight at the back and then taking very uh, meticulous care to have my baby hairs look fucking beautiful. This is and the 90s? No, 2005 oh, okay. when I graduated. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully my acne wouldn't be so bad at that time. I remember using the, the the whipped foundation from Maybelline, which at the time was like understood as being revolutionary um, in the makeup world uh, because of the consistency of it. It was like a mousse, and I'd like sort of cake that on and hope that uh, my bad skin wouldn't show through. Because um, at the time I had really really bad acne. My face is flawless now. Thank you very much estrogen uh but back then uh it was really really i had a horrible horrible acne so if I, hopefully i would be having like a good good complexion day too and that was when i was looking my best so what did you do when you graduated certainly never looked back cut off all of those people and didn't speak to them but um i had my eyes on trying to leave New Jersey, which is like a thing, right, for queer and trans people in New Jersey that I would later learn. It's also similar for people from Connecticut and Long Island. Um, but it's like this this zeroing in on the city. I want to be in the city. This, this is the only place that I've been to that people are like me, uh, that the, the way that I talk, walk, dress, act is not an issue. Did you so, see queer people when you were... Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that a big part of the reason why I went from being sad, ashamed, and fearful to being bitter, angry, and rebellious, which is also bad, but it felt better at the time. It's a huge step. Um, was because I used to go to the the LGBT center on 13th street for the yes program youth enrichment services. I have a very sharp critique of the LGBT center now, but back then it was very important and I was happy to be in the program of like a bunch of queer and trans teenagers. And I came every weekend for the, the Saturday group where it was just the, support group really uh sort of dressed in like extracurricular clothes uh to make us feel like less than i don't know something other than the prize that we all knew that we were 
like back at whatever schools we went to. Unless you were lucky enough to go to HMI or the Harvey Milk High School, which I wanted to go to so bad. I um Say I what HMI is. Oh, oh, um the Harvey Milk Institute, uh, which is like the, the after school program um at uh the Harvey Milk High School, which is I don't know if it's still open, but at least back then it was the one LGBT high school I think in the country. Definitely like that we knew of. And I wanted to go there. If I lived even at the top, top, top of the Bronx or like all the way out in Canarsie, I technically could at least apply to go, even if it would take me hours to get to school. But I couldn't do it because I live in Jersey. No matter how close you live in Jersey, if you can spit on the, the, the George Washington Bridge, it doesn't matter. It's New Jersey and you cannot go to Harvey Milk High School. And I was so pissed about that. And I, I begged my family to let me come and live with them in the city so that I could apply and go there. And it, and it never happened. And I was very angry. That's where I, I became very angry because um, I had gained access to some people who thought that I was okay uh, and who were like me. And I didn't want to not be around that if I could help it, which is why I would skip school, come to the city, <clears throat> and why I um, would end up being so bitter and angry toward the people who I felt like didn't have my back because I'd been exposed to people who didn't have my back. What years were you in the YES program at LGBT Center? From 2003 to 6. Okay. Yeah, so the yes program. in your last part of high school and uh, mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was great. We went to camp. I didn't do any of the like camp, uh, like the woods parts, but it was nice. It was nice. We ate pretty good food and like had a lot of discussions and got to kiki. We had like mini balls and, um, I won realness. Thank you very much. My first year. Um, yeah, it was it was it was great. I, I love I love yes. What were the kiki balls like? Um, people who were too young and too naughty for the ball scene, so you could go to a kiki or kiki function, and it was less shady nobody gets chopped um you're not walking for money um none of the girls have their titties yet or any surge so you don't feel shamed for not having work done um it's just less at stake um there's no predatory behavior by older people who prey on kids which is a thing. Sorry, ballroom community, do better. Um, so yeah, that, those were the, the, the kiki balls. They were a lot of fun. What did what was fun about them for you? Um, showing off, uh, being fab, um, having your friends there cheering you on, um, being in competition winning if you can win 
And then, yeah, afterwards, uh, you know, people putting their money together to go to the diner and get food and everybody were taking over the diner. People are gagging, you know, like all of these like horrendously queer kids. Oh my God. (laughs) If anybody saw us, I guess they would be so disturbed. Like, oh no, these young kids, they're throwing their lives away. You know, I imagine that that would be the impression. Um, But I was just having a good time. What do you dance? Yeah. Ball game with a girl. Yeah, it was cute. We had a good time. So you graduated, knew about the city, mm-hmm. and would come all the time. Tried to find sugar daddies to uh, take care of me, so that I could either move in with them or have them finance my life to so that I could live there. And uh, had real bad experiences doing that. Um, Any time that it would begin to happen, something bad would happen and send me flying back to New Jersey, crying. Um, men are trash. God, I don't know what else to say. I um, would learn very quickly that the influx of men suddenly who were like looking at me sexually, which was just like not a feature before because like no boys in my school would dare step to me then. So I like didn't have the experience of like flirting, dating, talking about boys. That was just not something that was available to me. But then Right. Suddenly there are all these like chanty chasers that are sorry, like that's a bad term, but like trans amorous men. Oh, my God, I'm not here for the trans amory movement. You can okay. call them chasers. OK, but, yeah. Fucking chasers. Terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, suddenly they're like washing me with compliments and um, buying me things, offering me money in order to, like, have access to blowing me or whatever it is. And um, they were just awful, all of them. And low-key, looking back, it's, it's some shit, but, like, a lot of them loved how young I was, which is, like, gross as fuck. Um, awful for their mistreatment of you or awful in a lot of the ways? Predat- yeah, in so many ways. And I suppose the most egregious looking back now is like that they were not just seeking out um, trans girls that hadn't been moaned out, surged um, so that, you know, they'd be more functional, but like they really liked the young ones. The ones that would hang out at the pier because they couldn't get into a club yet, right? So, like, why wouldn't you go to the club or cruise around the club where you know that, like, the adult girls are at? You're, you're like, driving around the pier and the church, which is, like, this, like, free... I don't know what church it was, but it's, like, up the street um, from the pier. I don't know if they still do this program, but, like, back then they did this program where... 
uh, they would like take in like uh, queer kids the to like. Zone? No, the neutral zone is on thirty third by Penn Station. I used to go there a lot too. Um, but no, this was a church, and we just called it the church, and we would go there like in the evenings on the weekends. Um, and I think it was like an effort to try to one like feed us, right. Um, because like low key, like a lot of us like legit like were hungry and food insecure and homeless. Oh my God. Ugh. Um So like we wouldn't be out on the pier, we wouldn't be like walking on Christopher Street, you know, back and forth, um, to West Forth and back, which is like what you do. Um, so we would go in there and eat and like do arts and crafts, Vogue, the boys who felt real would go play basketball. Um, put on like plays. We would be able to put on makeup if we wanted to. Um, so anyway, this is where some of the chasers would go and because they knew that that's where you go. And just looking back, I'm like, oh my god, y'all are some predatory assholes that like probably should just be fucking guillotine. Like, I would do it myself if I knew that they were doing the same thing now. I can't imagine they're not. I can't imagine they're not. So a lot of shitty people in high school mm-hmm. and then shitty chasers mm-hmm. after high school. Mm-hmm. Did you have friends at this yeah, time? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have great, great girlfriends that uh, I'm still friendly with. I'm not very close to them anymore because just the divergence. Once I would... Um, come to activism and organizing. Um, I sort of like parted from the life, uh, but it was very important for me uh, at the time to like um, definitively and and, um, uh, very consciously leave the the queer kid scene right around the, 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 the pier and the center and the church and neutral zone and the kiki scene. And then go and play with the big girls, right? Who post on Craigslist, go on tour, um, go get pumped, go to Mexico and get surge. And like, now I'm like playing with the big girls. And that was a, a very important shift that looking back seems seamless and easy, but like, at the time, I was very scared, actually. And even though I would meet friends then who I needed, that time was rife with a lot of problems. Tell me about, uh, you listed off things big girls would do, and I could guess what all those are. Yeah. It was uh, Craigslist, yeah. Go to Mexico yeah. City, yeah. Mexico. No, Guadalajara. Uh, Guadalajara. Dr. Sunny. And Get Pumped, mm-hmm. uh, Surge, Get Surge. Oh, yeah, Surgery. Yeah. So, so tell cos- us about yeah. each of those things. Surge, uh, cosmetic surgery for feminization, your face, your body whatever it is, and pumped with 
silicone injections. Yes, very dangerous. Wouldn't recommend. Would do again, if I'm honest. Um, now, that, that lifestyle and those circles of girls, before I would like be inducted into... Um, uh, we we knew who they were, like we knew them, like like I don't know, like like people who follow sports know the players. Like we were like the naughty queer kids who, you know, didn't have any connections to get into any clubs. Uh, couldn't even really feed ourselves and feel fab and go to a bar. We would get kicked out of Starbucks you know, uh, after X amount of time when, like, whichever of us had enough money to actually get a call. Like, it was, like, it was bad. Like, we were not fabulous. We were, like, the on the low rung. Like, half of us, like, didn't even, like, have clean clothes. Like, it was really bad. It's such a reflection of this disgusting society. Anyway, um, we knew who the girls were. We would just call them the girls. We knew who we were talking. We were actually talking about like trans women who had their surge, who looked lovely, who we knew were sex workers, but whatever. They had money, right? They, they had their work done. Uh, they lived a comparatively better life. And we did. So some of us would end up going into that scene in that circle. Some of us would not. And um, they call them generations, which is so bizarre. But they refer to sort of like a set of time. It's not 20 years. It's more like a year. Like of like when you... And the sort of like young naughty girls who are like maybe just starting hormones, maybe not playing in drags full time, maybe not making a little bit of money turning tricks, maybe not, but like not committed, not really in the life. And then like within the span of a year or so, all of y'all will sort of then go into the scene maybe you get a mother i had a mother nicoletta extravaganza darling i love you nicoletta i know i'm not close to you like i used to be but i love you and i'm thankful for everything that you've done for me you know you'll find one that will take you under her wing and teach you the ropes the ropes are not pretty but it's what you have to do and i did it so that would become my lifestyle and would be my lifestyle for some time until I was able to um, get all my work done and um, obviously like be on moans and change my name and have an apartment. I could just have my look and my life relatively together. And I did. And I'm Alyssa. Fuck you. I'm beautiful. I know it. You know it. So thank you, you know, to the to the lifestyle that I was very happy to lead it. Tell me about some of the girls that inspired you. 
Um, During that time. Yeah, so most of the girls were Nicoletta's friends, like other other girls in the House of Extravaganza. Uh, Destiny, the body. Hey, auntie. Um, Alexandra, Giselle. Um, I remember at that time, Amaya Mizrahi, who's now on a TV show. Congratulations, Amaya Scott. If I don't know if you'll ever listen to the Trans Oral History Project, but like, whoa. Like, she was a ballroom girl who everybody thought was like a bad bitch. And there were like all of these rumors swirling around her. She was like this like ethereal goddess who like low-key a lot of people were very jealous of. Um, Because somehow she got all her money and got all her work and she was real. She snatched all the trophies at every ball. Everybody thought that she was the shit. And she was. And she still is. Congratulations, Amaya. Um, People really like Giselle, Body, Jessica Body. They were like not, they were like tangential to the scene. They were not in it, but they were like notable, like transsexuals of note. Um, so yeah, we, we looked up, so they were, they were really, really beautiful and, uh, seemed to have their shit together. Um, you know, had men drooling over them, had plenty of money. Um, looking back, obviously that's like not the ideal lifestyle, but so what? Right? Like at the time, it seemed like goals. So, yeah. Tell me about House Extravaganza and what your relationship uh, to it was so and the, what that, it was like. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a legendary ballroom house from like I think like the eighties um, that helped to make the scene more famous. So, like, I shudder to say her name. Oh, my God. There was a, there was a, a, a house beat with, like, a, a remix over it. And I don't know who it was, but they said over and over again over the beat, if Madonna calls, I'm not here. If Madonna calls, I'm not here. It's like a douche, the douche, the douche, the douche beat. And if you didn't know what they were talking about. What they were talking about is Madonna appropriating ballroom culture, making arguably millions of dollars off of it, and then be like, okay, I'm done. And the scene is as marginal as ever. The people are in as much poverty as ever. Um, It's hard to get venues because clubs feel like you're the wrong element and you know want to avoid you and the kind of people that you are like oh like it's it's crap it's bullshit but madonna is garbage sorry i know a lot of white gays love her. and not just white gays like plenty like queer and trans PLCs love her too, but like I, I despise Madonna. Um, anything else you want to share about House Extravaganza or that sort of period of your life with the girls? No. Better to be out. I'm, uh, I'm glad I 
would end up uh, getting into activism instead. Yeah, it like pulled me away from that. And um, God bless everybody in the House of Extravaganza. God bless everybody in the ballroom scene. I hope everybody's happy and safe and thriving. So what were some of your first encounters with activism? Okay, this is a... um, Okay. Technically, it was way back when, like during like my yes days, right? Because there was an organization that uh, popped up. Well, I don't know if it popped. I'm sure it was like a lot more planning than that. But um, an organization called Fabulous Independent Educated Radicals for Community Empowerment. Fierce. So um, now looking back, I can identify that what actually happened was like it was a group of uh, queer and trans PLC who had worked for nonprofit organizations before that were probably dominated by horrible white gays and they wanted to start something and not just that, but like also like adults who were much older than them. They wanted to start something that was specifically targeted for queer and trans young people of color. And they did it. And I was happy to like go to whatever rallies and meetings that they would have and want to relate to it and the people who were in it, who I perceived to be really strong, really smart, really like tuned into something that I didn't quite have the tools to grasp and wield myself. It felt like those are people who are like highly educated. I imagine that they all like had college degrees or were like on track for that, that had resumes, right? And could like get a real job. Um, so I like, yeah, I really revered them. And then not long after that, uh, I would go to the Audre Lorde Project with Maya Vasquez. Maya, I love you. I hope you do one of these trans oral history projects if you haven't already. Get Maya Vasquez. Okay. Um, who is like policy diva, programming diva. Like people know Maya because she was in the... Um, uh, the foster system it was like a ward of the state um, oh god which is like a category even of the kids who we all knew because like some of us still lived with our families that's fucked up as like all of our families were we still lived with them right some of the kids who we knew were wards of the state and like lived in group homes and like would not be fostered because like people do not want black and brown like queens as their fostered children surprise surprise um so a lot of them like had like an even harder go of it than the rest of us one of my best friends was one of them she used to come and stay with me sometimes she would like get special permission from her group home to come and stay with me and she would stay with me for as long as she could and my mom 
uh, loved her and was very nice. And I just saw her recently with my friend Sonar. And it was so hard because she was homeless and uh, um, she, um, she had had some kind of mental break. Like not really in reality all the time. And fuck, it was hard. Um, so Maya was also one of those kids, but she managed to make it out because um, she would go into like the nonprofit world and like get like a little nonprofit job, would learn this, learn that. And in not a lot of time, would actually be drafting policy and developing programming. She's brilliant. Um, and her main thing back then was doing jail support for the girls who would get blocked um, for prostitution, more than not. Um, and she knew that they wouldn't have anybody that would come and advocate for them. And even if they did, the girls really didn't know what to do. So you might like go there and like try to like put money on the books or find out when she's getting out. Uh, find out like the tea, like what you need to know, but like not really knowing what to do. Maya's like, no, no, no. This is what you do. This is who you call. Uh, this is what you're going to want to do. Uh, once you get there, you're going to want to like take notes. Uh, who did you talk to? What did they say? This is who you call when you're finished. You report back. You follow up. You let them know you're following. Like, she's sharp. She's so on it, right? So she um, developed the, the the Trans Justice Community School at the Audrey Lord Project, and I got recruited to it. And we learned how to do that part of the work that I talked about, but also, like, some, like, fundamentals of um advocacy and um just like the 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 structures of the of the nonprofit that we can uh navigate in order to like not be so marginalized like maybe like have some kind of a shot at getting our lives together and also generally just like learning how to like dismantle shame and like try to love yourself somehow um, so it was good. And I, I was the, um, valedictorian, for lack of a better word, of the first ever trans justice community school at the Audrey Lord Project. Thank you. Good night. Um, because I ate it all up and like would go home, read everything, write about it come back and like be so ready for the discussion that like the other girls would be like, Alyssa, relax. It's not that same. But I was like, I was so happy um, about it and um, uh, loved every minute of it. And then I would stay in the network uh, and, and like keep coming around um, trans justice meetings. So yes, it's activism, but it's not, the activism that I would come to know and love. And that came in October, 2011 with Occupy Wall Street. 
Oh my God. Okay. I lived in Jersey City, um, in the hood, in a, you know, my lifestyle was not great, but that's okay. It was mine. Um, so I would have to take the PATH train over um, uh, to the World Trade Center uh, before that monstrosity that is there now was built. If anybody goes over there, that mall that they have there is like dystopian. It, it, it makes me feel like I'm not on this planet. It is so disgusting. It's these grand high ceilings, bright white walls and lights, entire hallways of LED televisions talking to you, expensive um, boutiques, all sort of open air connected to the subway station, which is dirty and disgusting. And there are plenty of security maintaining the perimeter to make sure that no unsavory people come into the nice area. It is so gross. Anyway, wow. In 2011, it wasn't built yet. And... Uh, I'd have to go um, from the World Trade Center uh, pass station to go across town to uh, get on the train to like do whatever I was doing at the time. I was um, uh, being a um, uh, an assistant to a producer who had a production company called, I think it's defunct now, Complete World Domination where Laverne Cox was an associate producer. Hey, Laverne, love you, girl. You're the shit. Congratulations. You deserve everything. Don't forget about the rest of us. Um, she was an uh, associate producer. And I, I knew that she was trying to get into acting. She had these roles that she talked about how unhappy she was with. Because before Orange is the New Black, I think most of Laverne's roles were like transsexual hooker number four, right? Like uh, Laverne, that's not a slight to you. You deserve better. You're an amazing actor. We all know it now, but like back then, and even still now, like, you know, they're not checking for black trans women for a serious roles. Okay. Anyway, so she's working here and I'm like just doing, whatever kind of assistance stuff I can do. I had to take the train in order to get up there. It was in Gramercy. So in order to get there, I would go past Zuccotti. And all of these people are out there. And you know, usually you'll see protests. Well, I guess not you, because you're an activist too, but like you, the collective you. When you see a protest in the street in New York City, you're like, whatever, I have things to do. You put on your headphones, you look down, you get to where you got to go and hope that they don't get in your way. Which was my experience before then, frankly. Sorry. Um, but no. No, no, no. The, uh, that they were out there. They had tents. They were, like, not leaving. And they had a drum circle that was good. And people who were not activists, people who were, like, tourists or maybe tourists or whoever, they, like, 
uh, went around the steps where at the top of the steps, the drum circle was the good drum circle with like probably like African people because they really were very, very good. Um, and I'm like feeling it like the bomba is like, like coming out, like popping out of my veins. So I'm like over there, stood there, went in someone, I don't know who you are. I know you're an angel was like, Oh, do you want to see the camp? Come inside. And I'd already seen it during the daytime a few times and didn't think much of it. But this was a Friday night in October and it was good. It was mild outside. I know it was mild because I took my shirt off. Give me a moment. It wasn't scandalous. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I'll go in. So I go into Zuccotti Park and they have stations um, all throughout. They have like a library, they have a kitchen, they have like a, a tech area. And they had a, like a little arts and crafts area where you can make signs. And there was like uh, spray paint. That was fucking noxious and like all gummy and like sticking together, but it's okay. So I'm like, no, I don't want to make a sign, but I would just take my shirt off, put it on the ground, and they had an Occupy Wall Street stencil. Fuck it. I like spray paint Occupy Wall Street on my tank top. And I had that maroon tank top from Old Navy for so many years and I lost it in Florida. Oh, God. Um, it was very special to me. Um, so I went back and they're like, oh, you should come back. We have the general assembly, um, on Saturday. You should like come back during the afternoon and hang out and like, you'll like it. Like we, we're basically, we're just d- demanding to hold this space until the government makes better decisions and like doesn't bail out banks and destroy people's lives we're just gonna stay here until then i'm like oh, okay sounds all right like okay i will came back was in the ga experienced the people's mic for the first time just like in it and i didn't exactly know what it was i'm like hearing these people fucking scream around me and i'm like oh fuck and it's like something in my spine like fucking like shook like a i'm like oh this is it this is like I'm supposed to be here, and like that day, I like went home with a sore throat and couldn't talk the next day, and I was like yelling and screaming and felt so good. Pegs got bailed out. We got sold out. Like fuck. Like oh, all of the poverty that I had ever experienced my whole life, right? The the the, the dirt that I had to do in my adult life to make a a meager living. It's not my fault. Oh my God. Like bells ringing. Right? I was convinced without ever thinking about it. The reason that I'm poor is because the adults around me ain't shit. Because I chose to be a transsexual so I can't get a job. Tricks are horrible. So I'm like, so that's why I'm poor. Like, no, no. Those Occupy protesters for all of the critique that I have of them years later, were like, no, it's the system, right? And I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah, 
They didn't bail out the banks. If there was no tarp, Obama, who I loved and thought was like great until then. I hate you, Obama. Okay. Right? If there was no tarp, I mean, would we have like a a perfect society? Hell no, right? We would still have capitalism, but the banks would have failed. And something would have had to give. No. They gave billions of dollars to the banks so that they can stay doing exactly what they would continue to do unchanged and it's only gotten worse. It is so infuriating. And the fury has never left me. I'm so pissed about capitalism. This is like torture. Like, like everybody on this planet, everybody on this planet is being tortured because like of a few motherfuckers, right? That are holding the rest of us hostage. We will not go anywhere. We will not do better. We'll die. Like, we're going to fucking die. All of us. Because they're like, nope. I, I, this is what I want. And they have to put layers and layers and layers of people on co-signing. Yeah. We got big problems. So... I'm real mad about it. So, like, now I'm like, okay, so this is my life now. Just, like, here I am. Like, I'll just, I'll be an agitator forever. Until they fucking take me. Tell me about being involved at Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, so uh, I didn't have, like, a big role. I didn't, like, take up leadership or anything like that. I just uh, would soak it, soak it all in, scream at every action. Um... Uh, make a point to talk to people on the outside. Because you remember, uh, people would walk around the park, but wouldn't go in. People would talk about it. They were talking about it in the media all the time. Oh my God, they're talking about it really badly in the media. And I was very upset about that. Even Jon Stewart, who at the time, God forgive me, I thought was brilliant. Ugh, I'm barfing. John Stewart is so bad. Okay. All right. We learn and we grow. I thought he was so smart. And I watched The Daily Show every night. I had it on DVR, right? I felt like I'm educated, right? Because I get everything that he's talking about. But then he would, like, talk badly about Occupy, too. And he was, like, I don't know, like, the, the best of all of the commentators and all the news people, I thought. And he would talk badly about it too. Like, these people don't know what they want. You know, look at all of these people with all of these disparate interests at Occupy. And they would like show people from like different sections of the left and like different organizations, different causes, and be like, these people don't know what they want. They're not, you know, they're not making concrete demands. And I, I was very, I, I felt like hurt by that. And betrayed in a way um and then not long after i would learn like oh like he's actually just like a fucking shitty liberal and that was when i learned the difference between liberalism and being a revolutionary and i'm like oh he's committed to this system maintaining 
and he probably wants there to be like some more fair treatment and sees some of the chaos also thinks that people who are fighting against it are misinformed and uh, laughs at them and gets his audience to laugh at them. I'm like, oh shit. Like looking back, right? Like if Jon Stewart would not have done that, if he would have affirmed them, if he would have taken some time to like thoughtfully engage and then would present that thoughtful engagement to the people who followed him and there were a lot, right? It wasn't just um, people in his crowd, obviously, but everybody who watched, right? I remember learning at the time that like colleges and universities across the country would have like nightly watching events where they people would come and just watch the Daily Show together, right? On top of like all of the people who would watch all over. If he would have thoughtfully engaged and affirmed Occupy, that might maybe, maybe, right, have had a tangible effect on how people perceived it. And then who would support it? Who would go to it? Who would see the bank bailout not as just like a bad legislation, right, because he admitted to that, but like, no, something that needs to be militantly fought against until they relent, well, we'd be, like, it would actually be, like, this is maybe a stretch. Like, it would be a different world. It wouldn't be a utopia. But it would be different. Really different. So fuck you, John Stewart! Okay. So how did you learn what being a revolution <sighs> So there were people from, like, sections of the left who were there, and they had, like, varying ideas. How much changes? Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not okay. I'll move on. Um, watching their debates with each other. Right? So, trying to perceive what it was that they were arguing. I had no idea what it was that they were even talking about. They were talking about strategy, history, theory. And at the time, I just, I wasn't confident to like even say anything. So I just stayed away because they're talking about stuff that I am not knowledgeable about. But I can read. I can like try to learn what it is that they're talking about. So I got the fucking communist manifesto. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Got it. Like, not like that's how I felt at the time. Like, since then, no. Like, we must always study and learn. But at the time, duh. Like, I didn't see it. It, They, uh, in 2011, in 2018, they seek to conceal themselves with right? Like, what they want is what everybody wants. Um, of course we have wage labor. That's how people live. Um, of course there will always be homeless people. Some people don't like to work, right? Like these are the, the widely accepted ideas of our society. Like 
poverty is absolutely normalized, like even by sections of like the left, if you want to call them that, like that there is not every day, everywhere, massive protest against anybody being homeless fucks me up. It fucks me up. So like Marx is explaining to me like why it is this way. And not just why it is this way, but how it is that it maintains itself through ideology. Okay. So I see what's in front of us now. And it's going to take a collective struggle in order to transform it. And it's going to mean talking to people who don't already agree with you, becoming good at it, right? In order to change their minds. Be courageous yourself in order to show people that they can do it too. Dedicate yourself to collective projects that center having an outsized effect on a layer of people that don't already have the ideas that we have. Studying always history and theory and what's happening now, relating them, always coming up with solid analysis to point a way forward, to learn how to argue, hopefully uh, without being a fucking asshole, which frankly is like a big part of the left's problem. And I mean the left, like not liberals, but like, I'm sorry. Yes, we can disagree. Yeah, absolutely. Every revolution has failed. So like, yeah, we should be able to say this failed this way. I disagree. No, I think it failed that way. Some people say, no, it never failed at all. Y'all are, okay. Anyway, um, that's cool. But like, actually, what I keep saying, I'm like, do y'all realize that when you talk to each other, you're actually being really fucking disrespectful? And it's disingenuous to say we should be able to have comradely debate. Because, like, they said this in the common turn. Yeah, I get that. But we're not there. And people actually have really sensitive egos. You have a really sensitive ego. And when people disrespect you, you assassinate their character, assassinate their comrades. Well, not literally. We're not there yet. I know what's going to happen. Good luck to me. <laughs> I don't get taken out too early. Um, like, you know, like, uh, you know, try to take down their whole organizations. They, every comrade that they have, like, uh, impugn their intelligence, right? Like, not engage with them in a way that is I'm trying not to say comradely, but like in a way that is like, that takes into consideration um, that they are committed anti-capitalists too, right? Like to go straight from like, we're on the same side to being like, actually you're a counter-revolutionary. You're trying to lead the working class down the wrong path and you need to be stopped. You're actually, your whole analysis is wrong. And you shouldn't be able to organize and your organization should not function. I'm like, y'all are just awful. 
so much of the left is just like really shitty men who are egomaniacs and care more about taking one another down than waging a successful struggle. It's really hard because I still have to deal with them because I'm not taken with the idea of like, you know, pushing out problematic people. Like I, I respect people who make that their work. It just doesn't seem like a good use of my skills. So I just continue to work with people who I'm just like, yeah, because like, that's all we got right now. So you're at Occupy. Oh, yeah. You were hearing debates between leftists. Mm -hmm. You thought hard about what they were saying. Mm -hmm. You read the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. You became a socialist revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And then did you get recruited? Did you get involved in something? Yeah. So um, uh, I left Jersey City. I um, caught caught a pretty decent sugar daddy in Florida. And, um, I did Occupy down there too. I was in Tampa, Florida and there was, um, there was an Occupy there as well. In fact, I think it has the, uh, superlative of being like the longest running Occupy, like that, like maintained their encampment the longest. And a funny thing about that is the reason they did was because low key, sorry, Tampa, love y'all. Their park was not actually public. It was privately owned by a guy who owned a strip club or a string of strip clubs. And for some reason was like sympathetic to Occupy and let them stay there. They had decided to give up their original occupation, which was at a public park in a sort of, um, uh, busy like downtown place and they decided i don't know well they decided to go to this um park that um was privately owned that was in the hood not in the face of the bankers um and they were able to maintain it for a long time um but anyway so then uh, that fell apart because chasers are fucking shitty people. Shock. So, left there, went around, tried to make some money here and there. I tried to get, like, my next round of surge money. So, like, did a lot of dirt to make it. And, uh, that would end up taking me to Portland, Oregon, of all places, um, and that was where I met Jamie Partridge, retired NALC, um, who, a National Association of Letter Carriers, Jamie tells me, don't say the union's acronym because people don't care about unions. So you have to say what it is and what they do. So they are the outside uh, mail carriers. And Jamie is uh, retired from that union, but still is in the national leadership for the, um, the movement to save the post office. So 
if you like the post office, if you think we should have a post office, like, I don't know, like, I don't send Jamie a, a thank you because his work is very important to the maintenance of the post office. The postmaster general, by the way, who is responsible, was supposed to be responsible for the management of the post office, is very happy to sell it off. So we have some problems there. Uh, so I met Jamie Partridge walking down the street and uh, he was uh, uh, like tabling, talking, shopping. He's like, hey, what do you think about socialism? And he was surprised when I immediately was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we need it desperately. He's like, oh, really? And he like immediately plies me with so much that's happening in the city. And then I would later find out that this was exactly the right person to meet because he has his fingers on the pulse of just about all organizing on the left in Portland. He's not in the leadership, but he's fucking there. Um, so he's like, oh, uh, come to this meeting. Uh, uh, meet these people. There's an action on this day and this day and this day and this day. Please stay in touch with me because all of this stuff is happening and, and like gave me like a lot to read and digest and I did. And I stayed in touch with him. Thank God. Uh, because then he would teach me how to organize other people. So like at Occupy, yeah, I participated. I screamed, got laryngitis regularly. Um, and would give flyers to people who were walking around Zuccotti Park. But I didn't participate in any of the outside stuff that people were doing to try to bring in new people. I, I didn't, that was just not my lane. Again, I just didn't feel very confident. But between that time and, uh, I, I don't know, I want to say like maybe like a year later, I had done enough reading and research that I felt confident. And it was during that time that I'm like, I, I am a socialist revolutionary. Capitalism must fall. This is not tenable. Like, not only is it a bad economic system, but then, like, I'm realizing, like, oh, the reason that we're able to have racism maintain itself is because of the inequities that are pushed. Like, it's so hard for people to have any kind of solidarity because, frankly, like, sorry, a lot of working class white people are deeply racist, even though it's actually not in your interest, but here you are, like, thinking that you're better than me because of my skin color, you are so misguided. And then on the other end, right, like uh, there, there are people who uh, fight for racial justice who are not necessarily anti-capitalist because uh, some of them believe very much in their ability to be able to become rich themselves. Some of them think that that's the way for us to be able to like have a more just society and to be able to erase the foundations of racism if enough of us are able to get enough money to uh, create and maintain institutions to take care of our own then maybe you know we'll be able to you know uplift um and some of the other ones are like no white people are uh the devil right white people are problematic they can't be worked with and oh god like all of this like um animus all around i'm like like this, we have to figure out a way to cut through this to be able to argue for solidarity so that we can at least have a shot at striking a blow. Because right now I'm like, 
despite the fact that sometimes when you're in the left, you get excited, you know, if you have a good protest, if you got a good campaign going, like, oh, we're winning. But then, like, sorry. But, like, then, like, when I step out of it and I talk to somebody who's not an activist, which for some of us is, like, not a lot of people because we really, like, situate ourselves in our circles and, like, stay there forever. But, like, even if I just call my mother, right, and then I'm, like, listening to her life and I'm, like, oh, I'm not making as much of an effect as I think I am. No. Um, we're real far away from that. We have so much work to do. Um, uh, but, uh, Jamie Partridge would introduce me to Teresa Rayford, who is the, uh, founder and lead organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, which is like the Black Lives Matter group that, um, operates in, in Portland, Oregon. And Teresa also is a foster kid who went through a lot, who learned about policy, learned about programming, tried to go through the channels of nonprofit this um, and uh, uh, consulting that, the uh, Urban League, NAACP, church, all the things, right? Not anymore. (laughs) She has fatigue with that. She has a very sharp analysis and deep hatred of gatekeepers and poverty pimps because she spent her time dedicating herself and and uh, uh, um, draining herself um, and uh, because she really believed in like these uh, black leaders, and then she learns about audits. She learns about grants, foundations, uh, executive boards, and uh, the refusal to engage in any kind of illegal activity, like protests, right? Um, So she stopped that. And um, when uh, the... Um, Black Lives Matter hashtag became a movement, right? So like after Ferguson, she's like, boom, and like takes off. And then, and then the movement more broadly takes off and she's leading thousands of people into struggle. And Jamie introduced me to her because they had already known each other for years. It's like, you know, you, this, this is, this is a good fit for you. And I'm like watching her. Cause I had already been to like a few of these protests. Like high, right? Like it, like watching the movement, right? Like I'd like, uh, like see other cities too. And I'm like following people and, and watching all this happen. I'm like, whoo. And I'm like getting excited. I'm like, it's, cities all over right like this is this is really something like the the police are not going to be able to do this anymore oh god if only like oh how naive i was but like at the time like the cops are not going to be able to like do what they do anymore because people are waking up people all around are saying black lives matter 
and we know what they're talking about, right? Even though there are these people who are saying all lives matter, right? Like these like reactionary fucks. Um, the movement is like on the move and growing and like get in new cities all the time. And you know, uh, the next time a cop kills somebody, everybody's paying attention and, and we're doing another action on that day. And, and, uh, there are even some, some grand juries that don't acquit, right? Some people that are even like, like, okay, if we keep pushing, this is going to break. And I'm very excited about it. Okay. So I met her, began to talk to her. And she immediately was like, well, come on, let's go. Come to the front with me. Take this bullhorn. Let's lead this march. I'm like, I'm not quite ready for that. I just want to support, right? I just wanted to chat. And she's like, no, come on. And then I had to be honest, right? And then some of my old, like, trauma was, like, coming up from, like, in the care, right? And I'm like, listen. I know that most people think that trans people are like disgusting and revolting and don't want us around. So is there something else I can do? And, um, the, the look that she gave me was like this genuine confusion and concern, like, and like heart, she was heartbroken to hear me say that. She's like, what do you mean? You like I've seen you because she had seen me do other activism stuff, and she's like, "You're good. You know what you're doing. We need you. Like really, we need you." Because like there were some people, you know, um, for anybody that was in any Black Lives Matter groupings, you know that there were people that had all different kinds of ideas and strategies that they were putting forward. There was all sorts of fighting, and uh, it was very much a battle um in a lot of cities and yes like even like in like the national networks um that would end up leading to like some splits and reformations and things like that anyway um so she's like no actually we need you there's problems happening and like you need to be here and if anybody says anything to you just tell me and they're fucking out like we're gonna handle them i'm gonna go fuck them up and i believe it and it like opened up because like now I'm like, oh, there are people who like really think I'm all right and think I'm like worthy and like think that I'm, I can like lead a struggle. What? So I'm like, okay, well, let I'm, I am yours. What would you like me to do? And I now know how to table at events, uh, speak in public, definitely know how to lead a protest, try to evade the police, um, uh, use a bullhorn, try to preserve my voice. Not quite good at that yet. I get laryngitis at every action still. Are there any voice coaches that see this get in touch with me and help me figure out how not to do this? But I scream. I It's like, it, it's protests are the are better than any therapy session ever. I I know that it's transference at a pro, like I've accepted that. I've had some friends that have like uh psychoanalyzed me and they're like um I'm glad that you are 
an activist and that you are committed to social justice. But please know that like your fury that you have is being fueled by your trauma that you're not addressing. And I'm like, okay, I can hear that. And like, I, so now I, I'm, I'm conscious of that. Maybe that will change something in my life, but, um, I, I can say that that is true. And I have a lot of fucking drama. So like when I get out into the streets and like, if the protest is actually like heating up and the people are angry and it's militant and there's like some path forward, it doesn't even have to be clear or correct, but like something is brewing. I'm like, ah, and I'm just like fucking like, like everything in me comes out and um it's it feels good in the moment like usually i'm pretty exhausted afterwards and like like really fall and like pretty depressed um but like the high is intense it's very very intense um so teresa is actually um doing a a, a protest candidacy against uh the mayor of portland who is, oh my God, complicit is not the word. Um, he made a bunch of offhand promises. I don't even know if they were promises, but like said some things that might've been vaguely interpreted as we're going to reel in the police a little bit, right? <laughs> That's like not saying a lot, but... That's what he ran on. And many people would say that that's part of why he got elected. Excuse me. Um, his name is Ted Wheeler, by the way, the mayor of Portland, um, as, uh, as this is being recorded. So when he came in and didn't do that, but actually like turned it up and like was like, uh, not only are we not committed to like reeling in the police, we're going to unleash them even more. Right. Uh, so get ready, which is like the implication. Um, so she's actually going to be running a protest candidacy against him in, uh, 2020 Teresa Rayford, 2020. Um, she was also arrested. Her arrest was very public because it was targeted. They, they targeted her at a protest, um, and, and, uh, snatched her up, locked her up. And there are a lot of, legal things around that. We ended up taking it, we, like I was in it. She took it to trial with her lawyer um, and uh, didn't take a plea deal after it was over. Won the case, which is rare, right? Um, and uh, and will be used as precedent going forward, thank God. Um, and is going to sue the city now and maybe we'll like get a hefty sum. Um, so you know, maybe, maybe the movement will be infused with, you know, uh, us not being so fucking broke anymore. Um, and having to like beg our allies for money, which is like always pretty humiliating. Um, but long story short, you know, these two people are like my political parents, like Jamie Parges and Teresa Rayford. I love y'all so much. Um, thank you for teaching me how to organize. I will continue to, to do it and hopefully I'll do it well. Uh, you've mentioned several ways that uh, gender and trans experience has connected to you being a revolutionary. You uh, talked about the experience of being 
accepted and welcomed as a leader. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the rage that comes out at your father and your past and that the way that that rage comes out in protests. Can you say more about like what you bring as a, as a trans person to your revolutionary work? Uh, I hope that if nothing else, and I'm okay if nothing else is, I hope that, you know, many things can come out of it. But at the very, like, if nothing else, I hope that other trans people, especially kids, will see me somehow and be like, that's a fucking badass and I can be a badass, right? Um, Because... A thing that happens is uh, many trans people who we might call political leaders, not mentioning names, but, you know, if you're hurt by this, maybe I am talking to you. They actually are nonprofit organization employees. And not organizers and activists. And even if that organization has a good mission statement, it doesn't affect the reality, the material reality that these organizations cannot advocate for civil disobedience and militant protest in the face of state repression. It's not going to happen. It can't happen because they won't get funded. Um, there are some foundations that will just write you off if your people have been arrested, if you participate in protests that like get out of hand, right? If your um, material uh, that you put out is calling for things that they just deem unacceptable, right? Like that the they can give you the money or not, right? So even if it's not um, in the print, it has a conservatizing effect on maybe not even the activists who I'm talking about, the, the girls that are working for the nonprofits that you know, maybe just do facilitating outreach, and administration stuff. I'm not talking about you because actually you don't make the choices. It's the executive board or maybe the executive director, one that decides what comes, what gets put out and how much they can advocate or not for their organization to participate in what actions. So, one of the things that I've heard many times, and this is very frustrating to me, is after people in a meeting say, oh, what we should do is go to City Hall, for example, right? And call out this person who's in charge of this policy 
and go do a direct action. Bring signs, call our allies, and do a sit-in and not leave until we get what we want. That's good. That's great. Like, and obvious, by the way. Uh, the facilitator will pause and someone will come in and stop and say, we cannot do that. And this is what they'll say. This is so insidious and dishonest. We can't do that because the the members of our community and the people who we're responsible for who come to our organization are mo- most at risk by state violence, which is true, by the way, but very paternalistically will say, and therefore we cannot advocate that they participate in this. Oh, that's evil. That's It's so messed up because I know I'm not so special that my upbringing and, and the kind of life that I've lived makes me so furious. I know that so many girls like, and, and not just girls, but like, cause I, I keep saying this, but like also, um, cis men, cis women, non-binary people, trans men, I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying, right, brown trans women like me. People who experience oppression, oppressed people, people who are targeted for state violence across the board. Yes, we're targeted for state violence. Yes, we've experienced like these degraded, humiliating lives, but to assert that because that's true, we can't be at risk is like a special kind of like sneaky, insidious, conservatizing bullshit. Because no, like I I know that like what that will likely translate to is when it actually heats up, if we were to go to City Hall, and uh, uh, and confront uh, a, a counselor about some shitty thing that they did that affected us, that affected our lives in a very direct way, and it was clear to everyone who's there. Actually, if the cops did come, if it did get hot, if it was a frenzy moment with media and lights flashing, like you know, like if it got, if it was boiling, I bet you the people who would step up and be the most militant, who would fucking wake up. And, and just go into a, a, a blackout moment that I'm sorry is often what it takes to get what we need. It would be people who are the most oppressed and most at risk because it's the, they're the people who are most degraded and have the most anger inside of them because of what's been happening to them their whole lives. But we can't do that all because of a funder who may not give the organization that money. I got a problem with that. A big problem with that. Have you, since your politicization in this way, tried to do trans organizing or engage the girls that you used to know? Only to the level of organizing a trans pride outside of gay pride without the police. Um... And with an explicit, in in Portland, Oregon, and with an explicit anti-capitalist line. 
and that was that was a great honor and um then a vigil for a, a call to action that came from the Black Lives Matter network in 2015 i want to say august 25th 2015 when they put out a call to action after another black trans woman sex worker was murdered and the case was not pursued she was misgendered mis like dead named in the press people don't feel bad for her people humiliate her in death nobody gives a fuck do you want to say her name India Clark um uh um Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Con Colors do a very good job of calling out transphobia in the um black racial justice movement more broadly. Um not just the Black Lives Matter Network or the movement for black lives, but just use their um their platform to always affirm trans people. And like for that I will always be grateful. Um because when they put out this call, they received uh, um, pushback. And they continue to receive pushback for their uh, explicitly pro-trans politics. Um, uh, in fact, uh, um, um, Alicia and Patrice, I think, are married or in relationships with, with trans-identified people. So they've got some skin in the game, right? They love deeply... Uh, trans people. Um, so they put out a call and I um, realized that it wasn't going to happen on its own. So I'm like, okay, well, let's do it. Talk to Teresa um, and talk to uh, Lyles McFarland. Hey, Lyles, uh, who uh, was the leader of um, Portland Trans Unity and brought everybody to the table um, and said, okay, well, this is going to be an emergency vigil because it needs to happen quickly. So people who had resources to this or that thing made it happen. And we, um, had a successful vigil that we called say her name that day. And that was one of the most important moments ever for me. In fact, the picture that someone Oh, I wish I remembered her name. La Stephanie is her photography name. Took a really beautiful picture at the end of the rally. And I'll talk about the rally and why it was special. Took a really beautiful picture of everybody on like these like steps in like a, a, a city center. Really beautiful called Pioneer Square in Portland, Oregon. And that picture still is my background picture on Facebook and I look at it every day and there are these beautiful lit um, light boards that Portland Jobs with Justice, shout out to Portland Jobs with Justice and the whole Jobs with Justice network, um, that they um, made 
So they're like blackboards with the with the LED lights inside of it that say say her name in the background. It's really really beautiful, and they're like people that have the Black Lives Matter signs and trans flags over there. It was really really nice. It was very special. Um, and what made that special that vigil special because I've been to a lot of vigils for um another transsexual slain, which is what the girls used to say, which is like. And they would like say it in jest, which is like so dark that it's so normal for the girls to just get killed. And we hear about it, that when we hear about it as a key key aside, we say another transsexual slaying, like in jest, that's fucking tragic. So I'd been to a lot of vigils and um, some better than others. But this one was a um, was a, a collective vigil, vigil for all of the trans women who had been murdered in 2015 in the U.S. up to that day. And it was 22. Most of them are black. And most of them are sex workers. And most of them should not have to be sex workers. Um... We asked people who had the capacity to do research to find out about them, what they cared about, what they did, who loved them, what did they say about them, right? So that it's not just a generic reading of a name, age, location, like who the fuck was she? What did she care about? What was her potential? You know, like what? Who killed her, right? Like, if that's a, if, that, if we can even find that out, who did it, right? So we're not, like, passively, like, using the passive voice, right, to say, a trans woman was killed. Who killed her? And what, and what happened to him? Him. I don't think any of the people who killed them have been women. Men who are chasers, who do know their tea, are the ones who kill them. This idea that they get murdered for tricking a man is a goddamn myth. It is a myth. I have a video about this. Go to youtube.com slash Alyssa Pariah and find it. It's called She Tricked Me, A Myth That Kills because it does. People really just deeply believe. It goes back to Richard Bay. And Ricky Lake and Jerry Springer. Because if that is the only exposure that people have to trans life, and for many people it is, if the topic is my girlfriend is a man. Oh! <laughs> well, that's in the ether. That's what people know about us. So if a, a trans woman gets killed. It's because she lied. Jerry Springer told me that that's what happens. I'm telling you, it does not happen. I don't know any trans women who have any difficulty getting fucked. None. 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 All the girls can get laid if they want to get laid. Can have any kind of sex with whoever they want. Sorry. Sorry. 
maybe your father, maybe your brother, maybe your son is the one that they're doing. If they're assuming they even like men, maybe your mother, maybe your daughter, maybe your sister. Like, I'm sorry, but like, it's just not a problem for trans women to get laid. People want so badly to believe that because they perceive us as being gross. So like, they would like to think that like, nobody would want that. People fucking want this. Anyway. The people who kill us are usually people who already want this, have already had it, and can't deal with the shame. So these men are murdering trans women who, like, sometimes are even their girlfriends, and at the very least are, like, they're, like, that that they were tricks for them. And they can't deal with it. Um, so this vigil featured that as a reality. And it was very special to me. And my involvement in the Black Lives Matter movement and for racial justice more broadly, that it can be so explicitly infused with trans politics is cathartic for me. And helps me to know my value in the movement outside of the kind of... um tokenization that I sometimes feel when I'm working with other organizations. Um, I never think that that's what's going on when I am doing uh, racial justice or trans justice work, which is very nice. Some of the work of Black Lives Matter that I've seen, I think particularly in Toronto, but to some extent in New York and other places, I think is the most trans-inclusive organizing I've ever seen outside of the AIDS movement. It's been pretty... Mm amazing yeah thank you all. i love y'all oh my god mm-hmm. i feel very welcome uh very unimpeded which is like not a thing that i typically experience in my life i feel very impeded always but not not when i'm not when i'm doing organizing in this way yeah shall we have a break okay So, you were uh, living in Portland, mm-hmm. getting involved in uh, Don't Shoot mm-hmm. Portland, mm-hmm. and getting really inspired by a couple of people, a couple of inspiring political mm-hmm. figures for you. Mm-hmm. Um, tell them what happened next. Like, yeah. What kind of work did you do next, and where did that go? So, I should say, Don't Shoot Portland comes from what we know is the last words of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. He had his hands up and told the officer, my hands are up, don't shoot. Um, I think he was on his knees when he said it. And Darren Wilson just blew him away and got away with it. So that's how we got the name Don't Shoot Portland, or how Teresa came up with the name Don't Shoot hands up don't you just in case there's any confusion so after that i would go into the leadership of 15 now so 15 now is a uh, project of mostly people in socialist alternative that has a different strategy for winning a $15 minimum wage 
<clears throat> then the mostly Service Employees International Union or SEIU strategy um, that uh, operates under the name Fight for 15. So we would say that we're all fighting for 15 and there must be some sort of room for people to exercise different tactics in order to get it. On that note, I should say that the cities that have been successful, especially the first one, have been cities that had 15 now that was in the forefront of the movement for the uh, raising of minimum wage. So I was in 15 now, Oregon, which if anyone is saying, oh, well, why not 15 now, Portland? Well, some states have what is called preemption, which is a block that makes it so that cities and municipalities, counties or whatever, cannot have any sort of say in a given area of legislation. And in this case, that means wages. So no cities in Oregon can choose to uh, raise their minimum wages or make any sort of legislation around wage expectations from bosses in their city. That cannot happen. The Oregon legislature has voted on and instituted that as a policy and law. So even though uh, the vast majority of activists in the fight for 15 in Oregon were in Portland, and indeed most of the political organizing happening in Oregon is in Portland, and indeed most of the population in Oregon is in Portland. Uh, that was not something that we could do. We could not go to a city council and demand that. We had to go to Salem, which is the capital of Oregon, and demand it at the state level and make a functional coalition with other cities in Oregon. And we did. So ultimately, we were thwarted by a coalition that called themselves the Raise the Wage Coalition. And you can Google who was in that. Many nonprofit organizations and labor unions signed on to it. And it was alternative legislation to the 15 Now bill that we were petitioning for. A big, a big part of our um, work was petitioning. We had to get tens of thousands of signatures from people in order to get 15 now put on the ballot. In Oregon, they can vote on ballot initiatives. Not all states have this. In Oregon, they have ballot initiatives. So that means when people go to the polls, actually in Oregon, they do mail-in voting, but when people vote in Oregon, not only do they vote for people to be put into uh, uh, elected positions, but they can also vote on initiatives. And some of those initiatives uh, have fought harder than others in order to get onto the ballot. So our fight was very difficult, especially when the people who we imagined would be our allies, and actually some of them were, rescinded their support 
and put it behind the Raise the Wage Coalition, which at the time was arguing for a slower phase-in and a lower amount. They wanted thirteen fifty as an end goal, and it would take a longer amount of time to get there. And we only imagined that there would be even more carve-outs by those um, leaders as time went on and there was pushback from certain um, public officials, elected officials who were expressing concerns for one reason or another. And we knew that that would be detrimental because the people who were in the leadership of 15 now, most of them are revolutionary socialists, not just in socialist alternative. Um, in fact, Jamie Partridge, my mentor, is a member of the International Socialist Organization, and he was the chief petitioner. Um, so people, we we were very ideologically committed to 15 because 15 is the number that's capturing the imagination of working class people across the country and in, in Canada too. Um, so we knew that when and if people would come to us to water down parts of our legislation, we just simply would not do it. We're not interested in that part of writing any sort of any sort of bill or or um petition for the ballot. So the raise the wage coalition ended up being triumphant at least in the uh the the arena in Salem and on the the day that the legislature was meeting about this, uh, we had a uh, an occupation of the governor's office. Her name is Kate Brown. And very angrily, loudly um, uh, shut down the, the business in the state capitol that day. And the, the legislators locked themselves into the, the, into the chamber where they were discussing and they couldn't even carry on their meeting because even though the, the walls and doors are very thick, they could still hear us outside. There were some of us who were banging on the marble walls with our shoes and uh, screaming, and, and it, was, uh, it was an important moment. Um, I should say, though, that Oregon now is the first and only state in the country that has a tiered wage system based on population density. It's very convoluted. And it is convoluted because the struggle for raising the wage in more highly populated areas where we were able to successfully organize would not accept a, uh, a lower minimum wage than what people were fighting for the they they I, I imagine that they understood that they could not um, just keep the wage where it was it, it had to go up because of the organizing that was happening but in other places where there was little to no organizing happening and actually it is the uh, the Chamber of Commerce 
in, in those areas that are very, very powerful, those places um, uh, have uh, the, the lowest uh, minimum wage in Oregon. And then there's a three-tiered system, both in wage and in, in uh, incrementation over time. Um, so after that experience and that defeat, must be honest about when, when we're defeated, um, even though I learned a lot and that, that experience helped to consolidate new comrades and fighters for justice in, in Oregon, ultimately we did not get what we want. Oregon will not have a $15 minimum wage based on the, 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 the bill that was signed into law. Um, but, uh, after that, that, uh, I joined socialist alternative and then would go on to fight for, um, 15 in Minneapolis where I worked for the Ginger Jensen campaign. She's, she ran for city council and also did not win, but she was the, uh, executive director of 15 now. Um, Minneapolis and they won. Minneapolis is on track to uh, get $15 an hour minimum wage. And they actually beat back their preemption. They were successful in fighting their preemption. So um, Minnesota no longer has it so that people cannot fight for wages in certain cities and municipalities in Minnesota. Uh, so Minneapolis is on track uh, to get $15 an hour. Um, so Ginger Jensen, we're, we're, we're very thankful to you and, and to all of the comrades, uh, who helped make that possible, especially Robin Wansley, uh, who was in the leadership there. Um, a very, a very powerful black woman who I, I think the world of. So, Hey Robin. Okay. How did you end up in Portland? Um, H Hurricane Sandy had hit the Jersey shore really badly. And it was where I was living at the time. I knew that I could make a lot of money there and was saving up to get some work done, some surgery that I wanted to get done, done. And I could not make all the money that I'd hoped to get in order to get what I wanted because the apartment complex that I was living in was uh, evacuated and then later uh, condemned. So I wasn't sure where I was going to go next. I knew that I did not want to spend my time and energy and money on getting an apartment in New Jersey, I've had an aversion to New Jersey forever. I don't want to live there. I, I, I hope there are no people who are listening to this that love New Jersey and take offense to this. It's just not where I want to be. Every time I go back to New Jersey, I get depressed. Everyone gets a pass in complaining about the state where they grew up. <laughs> I, so, and you know where I'm Oregon, no? Oregon. Oh, dear. Okay. You rarely hear me say good things about Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Fair. I get it. I get it. Um, there are a lot of problems there, that's for sure. Um, so, 
I had a friend who wanted to go there because she knew that Working America, which is a project of the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is a sort of a big tent labor union that other that other labor unions affiliate to. You can you can Google the ins and outs of that and the history of it, especially when the AFL and the CIO merged. And I, I won't go on, but it's that was ri- not so good for yeah. socialism. Yeah, it's ri- it's riveting. Okay. Um, so they have a uh, a program called Working America where they will uh, send out people to do um, any number of projects in order for them to advance. And my friend wanted to get a job doing that there and felt like she had a, a good shot in making it happen. So she said, oh, well, I, I want to go. You should come with me. And I thought, okay, yeah, that would be great. I'm going to save up this money and get this work done heal and then yeah we can go out there hurricane sandy said no bitch you better figure out what you're doing right now so i called her up talked to her about it she said you know maybe what you should do is you just go out there get a place and i'll come out there when i've got my shit together well she never came and i was surprised to learn that I do very well when I'm in a new place where no one knows me and I have a clean slate. I'd never had anything like that before. And this was in 2012. Um, But I did like it and did very well with it. And I would go on to thrive. And that's where I would go on to meet Jamie and Teresa and begin to really see my potential to be an agitator, activist, organizer, revolutionary badass. And I am. And in Minneapolis, did you cross paths with any of the trans organizing that's been going on there? I I hear things. Mm -hmm. There are a couple city council members. Yes. Yeah incredible um i didn't do any organizing with their campaigns i was a full-timer uh with the ginger jensen campaign so eight plus hours a day um door knocking phone banking tabling going to events uh just trying to get the word out and to secure votes and I I didn't get to experience a lot of the organizing happening in Minneapolis outside of that. But I'm open to going back. It was good. I have some incredible comrades there who I know and love forever. So I'm open to going back. Not right now. It is January. It is like in the single digits, if not below zero there. So I'll see y'all in the spring. I was there between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Okay. So, um, have you spent time in New York since you all that? Mm-hmm. I mean, Hurricane Sandy was 
five years ago. Yeah. Have you spent time in New York during those five years? Yeah, so I came back in, I don't want to bog people down with dates, but uh, the summer of 2016, I went back to Jersey, Uh, damn it, Uh, to help my little sister who has two kids and was just having a a hard time and felt like if she just had some uh, help babysitting, right? Just taking care of the kids, then she would be able to get herself where she needed to be. And I just did it. Um, I, 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 I packed up my stuff and I left and I thought, ah, if, uh, uh, if I want to come back, I'll come back sometime. Um, and I, and I would like to go live somewhere else and see how it is somewhere else. Uh, so I went back to Jersey and helped out, um, as much as I could for as long as I could. And when that was done, love you. Um, I just, uh, went to my girlfriend's house in, in Brooklyn and Bushwick and stayed with her and then got uh, very active in the um, the Socialist Alternative branch in Bushwick and did some uh, really good organizing uh, with the the New Sanctuary movement while we were there, um, especially holding, holding Mayor de Blasio's feet to the fire, bird dogging him at his gym on Saturday mornings. Because despite his very lovely words, I don't doubt that he loves immigrants. He had the ability to dump all of the data of the NYCID program, which made it so that uh, people who might be undocumented have access to a city ID so they can access services. And all of their data didn't necessarily have to stay in a central location anymore once they had already had the IDs. And there we know that there are people on the right who wanted to get access to that. And we can only imagine why. Um, it, 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 I believe it is likely because they wanted to access that data to identify who is undocumented, where they live, where they can find them, and maybe to, to be able to send ICE to, to go and pick them up and put them through an immigration process. And he had every opportunity. From what I understand, it was actually on his shoulders. He could have put in the order to dump the data and, and no one would be able to get it after that. And he decided not to. I, I, I'm questioning why that is. More than that, there are more than 30 infractions that if someone gets arrested for, that ICE actually can get involved. So we know that one of the tactics that ICE is using across the country is to essentially hound uh, city and county jails and just wait for somebody to come out who they who they can identify as being undocumented and they can put them through a deportation process. Well, we know that there are only one or two infractions that, including like the the uh, murder, that you would then have to report the uh, the the information to the federal government that they, that they would be able to have access to their records, but we don't have to have more than 30 
that then we, we turn over that information because then ICE does have access to that information. So it, it to me, that undermines what a sanctuary city means because if the police and, and okay, Mayor de Blasio even acknowledges this to a degree, the police do have problems with racial disparities. They uh, more often than not seek out and arrest, detain people of color um black and brown people many of whom are from immigrant communities well that that does mean that those people may be getting arrested detained and and, and booked by the NYPD for something that maybe they didn't do or that they're being targeted by the police for so shouldn't it be that we that we bring bring down the number of crimes that would require us to uh, turn over that information about their arrest to the federal government where ICE would then have access? I think so. So that was um, some of the stuff that I was working on with Socialist Alternative um, when I when I was here. The new sanctuary movement, the director, Ravi, was Robbie. detained by ICE this week? Yes. You... Uh, so... One of one of the people that are in uh, the the new sanctuary movement um, spoke at a an SEIU Service Employees International Union local eleven ninety nine mostly um, healthcare workers mostly Haitian women um, and there was a rally uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day that explicitly called out President Trump and. I identified him as a racist, which I think is not something that should be shrugged off for a large union to call an action that is so political uh, that this was not related to a workplace issue. This was not a picket at a at a union busting shop. Um, this this was an a, an action against our racist president. They were calling him a, a racist. Um, one of the speakers that were there are also from uh, the New Sanctuary Movement and talked about uh, Robbie's case. And he absolutely is being targeted because he's an activist. They want him out because not only is he saying we want a sanctuary city, but he's pointing out how it is that we're failing at sanctuary and and protecting people that are in immigrant communities who are our friends, neighbors, and loved ones that were failing uh, in, in, in the city, in New York City. And he's calling on people to intervene and to be active in a militant way that does not uh, operate along some of the same lines of respectability that we often see with people who do advocacy and nonprofit work. Robbie calls on us to be courageous. And to and to put ourselves all the way out there uh, in order to to transform the system that we have right now that is killing people, and it 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 goes to say that he's being targeted for this, and um, I absolutely want him out because he is that important to the movement. So I hope that everybody listening will uh, follow that example and entertain 
the idea of militant protest that goes outside of the bounds of legal protest as it's been sort of uh, laid out for us because that's that's probably not going to give us what it is that we need. What is it like being back in New York um, when you've returned in the last few years? I feel really bad that I am not getting in touch with my old friends. I see y'all. I love y'all. I want the best for everybody. But there's a an emotional block there. I even saw Destiny. Hey, Destiny, I love you. Um, in Chelsea. And talked to her for a little while. And made sort of vague plans to get together and I didn't do it. And I'm not sure exactly what that block is there, but it's probably something around shame that I have not yet unpacked and that I feel like I flew away from the scene and the lifestyle and I just really don't want to go back because of how much it hurt me. I felt like I escaped and I know that my old friends are not representations of that. They did not cause me pain. It it definitely was the tricks like a hundred percent. What would enable you to reconnect to your old friends? Could you imagine in the future being ready to and what that would be like? Yeah, I, I, I suppose if I was in a better financial situation, I might, I wonder if some of my aversion is because I'm, I'm not too proud to go back to sex work. I just really don't want to. And being that I'm still dealing with poverty, if I were to get that close to them again, I'm almost sure that I would just go right back to it or be more confronted with it and I just I don't want to do that right now how have you been supporting yourself when you're not uh, doing tricks um I still see some men that I know and like do like webcam stuff Um, I get paid for the sort of on again, off again, or not very regular gig to do some sort of public speaking or inclusivity training, but I've not mastered the art of putting myself out there, uh, for hire for that kind of work. So I'm just not sure how to do it in a sustainable way. Not now, but I hope too soon. Do you have a sense of where your life might be going next? 
I'm going to see some friends in some other cities and see what kind of trouble I can get into while I'm there. And very consciously meet people and try to make connections and see if there might be something that sticks. Um, I know that uh, if Teresa Rayford's uh, campaign um, is able to really uh, get kicked into gear, and I say get kicked into gear and like, like as if I don't know how to do it. I think what will happen is I will work for that campaign again and I'll be able to hopefully do it in a more sustainable way um, so that I can, I can support myself. But I'm just not sure. And do you have um, a vision of what trans movements might be going or trans people on the left? Oh dear. No. No, I I don't see a forecast. I will support especially trans resistance that takes state repression uh, very seriously and wants to do campaign work or movement work that is outside of um, talks and panels and um, policy stuff with uh, the HRC. Like I, 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 I hope that this is not being read as derision. I'm, I, I'm so thrilled if any of the girls or if any uh, trans identifying person finds work. And, and finds work with uh, with an organization that affirms them and empowers them to uh, build community. I, I, I'm very, very happy for that. I think it is at least worth being critical. And that's not to say to be cynical and to be negative, but to be critical about what it is that will affect the kind of change that we want to see. I know that there are many people, some of them are my good friends, some of them I read everything that they write, I follow their their work. They believe that if enough people change their mind and correct their backward thinking, then a social cultural change will come with enough of a push. And I, I don't decry that strategy. I'm happy 
that there are people who care enough to try to change hearts and minds. For me, I am more drawn toward movements that take seriously bringing in new layers of people that want to engage the masses to push against oppression very directly. That's just where my skill set is. And I hope so much that that is something that more trans people want to do and do. So, um, shout out to all of the girls that are doing that. Um, especially, um, I'll say Aaron Lang with Get Equal. Um, Get Equal was out in DC, uh, fighting for, um, a, a clean, um, uh, clean dream act. And, uh, Jenny Gutierrez with La Familia in LA, who, uh, is famous for yelling down President Obama, President Obama, girl, I love you, um, and never stopped her, uh, her street activism since then. I, I hope that there, there is more and more of that, more and more of a, a direct action orientation and a very serious consideration of organizing people for, uh, grassroots community fight backs against um, oppression uh, broadly and also specifically in terms of the the, the policies even at the local level that uh, disproportionately impacts trans people and politicizing the the inequality that hits us the hardest um, so it's not necessarily that we need a, a, a bathroom bill in order for us to be able to, uh, or, or in order for us to experience oppression against us as trans people. But what about, what about labor laws? What about uh, deference to the boss to decide uh, what hiring and firing looks like? That, 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 is a, that, that is very deeply a trans issue. And I would love to see more organizing around the issues that will affect our ability to just make a living. Because remember, so many of us are living in poverty that if we can fight for economic justice and engage more trans people to fight for it in order to improve our lives and to build solidarity with cis people as well, I think we'd really, really be onto something in terms of moving away from mostly moral and moralistic arguments to ones that are much more rooted in material reality and um, uh, our capacity to be able to survive um, in order to fight back against this brutal, disgusting system. You mentioned that uh, bosses being able to decide hiring and firing being a trans issue. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Oh. What some people might call neoliberalism, I, I'm sure we don't have enough time to unpack what that is. I will say 
um, a an umbrella way to understand it would be a a rollback of gains that were made in social movements, uh, including the, the the civil rights and Black Power era, the gay power movement and movements, and uh, certainly uh, the the fights with dedicated revolutionaries that would end up giving way to the New Deal and uh, a way to understand or a way that I that that's easy for me to understand and explain what neoliberalism is is, is a way to undo all of the gains that those movements achieved and a feature of it would be what they call the boss's offensive which is a way for people who are Big and small business owners, uh, capitalists, the bourgeoisie, if you're political, uh, to be able to uh, not just break unions, um, but to implement any number of changes at the workplace that make it more difficult for their employees to express agency and to expect a, a, a decent standard of living and a certain amount of respect on the job. And one of those features is to be able to be very uh, picky about who gets hired on and what you can expect from them, how they should look, act, dress on the job, and your ability to hire or fire them based on your perception of how well they would be able to do at that job, which if un interrogated that that might seem like a perfectly fine thing if your if your goal is to make money and you know that trans people are reviled you might not want to hire a trans person because they may make it more difficult for you to be profitable well if we're being really crude here well maybe that's true doesn't that bring up bigger questions about profitability and bosses having the final say in who is employable and who isn't. And if we're for self-determination of all genders, doesn't that mean that we're going to have to pose a challenge eventually to the very system that would allow for bosses to be the arbiters in terms of who gets to be employed and, and thereby who gets to live in a house and eat food? I hope it raises larger questions. Excellent. Uh, what what else would you like to share in this interview? I would like to share an affirmation to all people that are fighting back against the system regardless of your tendency. Thank you for your work. I hope that you do not get discouraged. I hope that you take very seriously solidarity with people who are not like you, both in identity and in ideology, to link with people who have the same interests to fight back against oppression as you do, and that you can find ways to work together, to be effective, to 
win what it is that we desperately need and deserve, all of us. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alyssa. This has been an honor. You're welcome.